Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check, Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction. Yeah. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. 
theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. another edition of Theology Matters, and you're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg. In today's postmodern culture, people increasingly ask, Does absolute truth exist? Some claim our beliefs and values are purely subjective, based on no absolute moral authority. But is this what the Bible communicates? Certainly not. The Bible declares that God's words are absolutely true. The psalmist wrote that the laws of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The Apostle Paul noted that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. While today's skeptics may question whether truth exists, God has provided a clear response for those seeking a perfect standard on which to base their life. Allow God's perfect truth to refine your heart and life today. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. All right, sorry about that. I had some technical difficulties there. Uh, but as I say, welcome to... Another episode of Theology Matters. We got a, a good show uh, in store for you guys today. Uh, we are going to have Fred Butler. Uh, he runs the blog Hip and Thigh, and uh, I ran across this site uh, a while back, and he's got some some very good articles um, dealing with different theological issues and apologetics, and and uh, he's uh, with uh, Grace to You. Ministries, and so he'll be joining us, and we are going to look uh, in depth at the King James Version only controversy. And maybe those who are kind of unfamiliar with that, uh, that is the view among some Christians who believe that we should only use the King James Version of the Bible. And there's different, you know, stripes and flavors within the King James Version only community, but some of the extreme ones would say we could even correct the Greek manuscripts from the King James. <laughs> and uh, we're going to look at some of those claims. Uh, so Fred Butler is going to be with us in probably about 25 minutes. So before we do that, a uh, little housekeeping issues. Um, if you have not liked our Facebook page, you need to go do that. And that is at facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse, facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse. And I say that because we have a lot of great shows 
on uh, on theology matters. And I can say pretty confidently, uh, it has nothing to do with me. <laughs> it's uh, it's the guests that I'm able to get, uh, like tonight, for example. Uh, we are able to get some really amazing guests, and we've done some great shows. We've had. Uh, numerous debates between Roman Catholics and Protestants on Sola Scriptura. We had a Mormon uh, debate, a Christian apologist on the concept of God. We had Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience come on and do a debate with John Ferrer on uh, the existence of God and plan on having another one uh, coming up in January with an atheist and uh, and Shandon Guthrie, who's a, who's a good friend and, and through who some of you guys know who's been on the show before and and uh, debated the infidel guy. Brilliant, uh, brilliant philosopher. So those guys are going to uh, hopefully we'll set up a show in January and be able to do a show on that. See, just for the rest of this month, let me guys kind of fill you in what we're going to be doing. Next Thursday, we're going to have Rob Bowman on. And Rob Bowman, is uh, he's pretty well-known in the apologetics community. He's done a lot of work on the doctrine of the Trinity. And so we are going to have Rob Bowman on uh, next week to do a show on the doctrine of the Trinity. On the 19th, uh, we are going to have our friend Greg Sadler back. And he's a philosophy professor, and we've been doing a numerous series in this, or numerous shows, I should say, uh, in our series on philosophy. And so far we have looked at St. Anselm as well as Thomas Aquinas. And the 19th, we are going to be looking at uh, David Hume, who leveled some serious critiques against uh, the existence of God, proofs for the existence of God. And we're going to look at uh, his arguments as well as how to uh, interact with those arguments. And that's going to be the 19th. And then the 26th, we're going to do uh, we're going to have a replay show with uh, with a gentleman, Mike Kozlinski, who's been on here uh, before on Christian counseling. So looks to be a great month of shows. So I hope you join us. So kind of shifting gears uh, for the next 25 minutes or so, 20 minutes. Uh, I found a clip the other day uh, on the internet. And it was with uh, The View. And those, I'm sure, who... sure most people are aware of The View, but some might not be. But it's basically... Uh, it's a show where uh, Barbara Walters and Whoopi Goldberg... I can't even remember the other people's names. But they do these hot topics. And just to be honest, you know, and, and I'm not trying to be... Uh, mean or rude, but these ladies are are just foolish on a number of topics. And the particular clip I want to play for you now is them discussing abortion. And I wanted to play this clip. It's a few minutes long, so bear with me, but I want you guys to get the context. And then we're going to go back, and I want to answer some of these statements that are made. Because uh, I think they need to be answered. So let's uh, take a listen for the next few minutes. This is the View, and they are discussing abortion. And a lot of you know a lot of this is just the typical slogan arguments that you hear for abortion. And I want to show you guys you know we need to we need to take these apart 
and show people how to uh, how to answer these popular slogans because you know uh, with abortion it's life and death on the line and uh, we cannot play around with that issue and so we need to be able to uh, defend the the pro life position and answer these uh, just fallacious arguments so here's the view on abortion. President Obama addressed the abortion issue in his commencement speech at University of Notre Dame this weekend, and that drew boycotts and protests of his pro-choice stance, and some of them weren't quiet about it, okay? The protesters, they made a little noise. Check it out. the guy yeah. you know and then after the guy this this one was yelling because it was a very small minority that was actually protesting right, the, the majority group. of people at right. Notre Dame itself were not were not protesting at all they wanted him there and the president gave an eloquent speech Beautiful. because you know he pointed out to people watching that President Obama is a very compassionate person that he's not out for you to get an abortion nobody wants you to get an abortion but he is the rule of the land is pro-choice right now well, and and also he put the guy pointed out and the priest he's a priest that you know there are things like capital punishment they're not protesting those particular murders or torturing people so it's a it's not Catholicism is not a one-note samba it's a lot of issues. And this yeah. is just one note. My, my actually, this, this sermon this weekend, even at my church, was about how people tend to pick and choose the thing that they want to extract yeah. from the Bible and then um, protest. Whereas, though, you know, there are many, like you said, many facets of mm -hmm. um, following that Christian doctrine. I think, you know, the main problem that they had was with his stance on, you know, he was one of the loudest people um, not supporting the Infant Born Alive Protection Act. So that was something that was really riling up that one group and the partial birth abortion. No, he actually voted present. Cut. He voted present. I don't know how you vote present yeah. on that. You're either, it's a very clear-cut issue there. I mean, let's really be truthful. We're not going to resolve this issue. Yeah, people have very, very strong feelings about it. You know, some people feel, well, if you're against, truly against all murder, then you have to go back and protest all the presidents who have sent people to war. Right. If you're going to protest, you know, you really have to make a decision about where you stand. It's like, for me, it's like gay marriage. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe in gay marriage, do not marry a gay person. <laughs> bugs me about the, the movement, though. They call it pro-life and then pro-choice. Yeah. They should really call it pro-choice and anti-choice. Because that is what it's really about. That's what it's about. For life is still. I mean, if you are, no, the choice is against. Against choice. Interestingly enough, for the first time, for the first time in I don't know if ever, there was a recent Gallup poll that has 51 percent of people being pro-life. So this is actually the first time that. You know, it's interesting with pro-life. I'm pro-life also. It's very much an insult to me, as a person who values life, to say that I'm not pro-life. Who are these people? I am also pro-life. Deciding that I'm not pro-life. But I thought. It was interesting with that with that Gallup poll well, you're because now different then. they were saying no, they a lot. Call themselves what it is, which is anti-choice. You know what I was saying? Jump in there! Jump in there, Sherry! No, no, no! This was that Gallup 
cold. Yeah. They were saying that a lot of younger people now are saying that they're pro-life and they don't know if it's if it has anything to do with now. You know, before you know, 30 years ago, you weren't able to get a picture of the the baby in utero. Now you're getting pictures of this baby and what it actually looks like. I know. When you I was doing my ultrasound at 16 weeks, you see. I mean, you are able to see Listen, baby so much that you can't be a way to afford the child. Yeah. When you cannot afford to have the child, or you don't have the resources. Looking at that baby doesn't make it any easier to make their choice. I am pro-life because I think people who can raise it should raise it. Now, I don't say, listen, maybe the Octomom shouldn't have had 43 kids. Okay? But I do but, say, maybe but, we get it. But see, no, no, maybe we got her. That is her choice. And if, she is, choice. if she is choosing to have 55 babies, you can't suddenly say, oh, well, maybe you shouldn't you do it. If you going to have 55 babies and now I got to pay for all of those 55 that's babies, that's, that's, that's not going no, Well, maybe we got to do But here's the situation. She's got the money I to take care of I feel the same way. If you can't afford to have your kid, I don't want you having one. And I want you to have the ability to say the truth. I really can't do this right now. What about now. the people who do it based on convenience? But let's, because we, I, I understand. I don't hang on, let me finish. There let me are finish. that many people Wait that do it on I convenience. Have, I hear stories they're, all the time of women who are working, they don't want yes, to have a family. Stories, but we hear what about stories? those people? What they about those situations? They are boneheads. <laughs> you know what? They are but not. not let me finish. Okay. They are not the majority. The majority of people who are having these abortions are women who go through hell to make that decision. I am not saying they it's are, no easy decision, and, but I no, think there are. But there are, but there are boneheads everywhere. Boneheads everywhere. There are teenage girls out here. Mm -hmm. There are teenage girls out here who, I have to speak to that because I was one of them, who it, it wasn't a thing of where I didn't think of, oh, I can't feed this baby, I don't have you enough didn't money. Know, did anybody I, teach you? I was a teenager, you? it was just what like, it, who, who, who helped you? Where did you go to get help to talk about what had happened? I went to Planned Parenthood, and they actually were encouraging me to have the abortion. Even when I had second thoughts, How old they, I was 17, and, and I, I said I got second thoughts, but they were trying to rush me in there for, to have I, the abortion. I, I ended up not say, going, Sherry, but I don't know who, who you went to, but I'll I tell you. Parenthood. No, 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 I'm saying I don't. I was a teenager. I wasn't thinking about all the other stuff. No, I was thinking I'm pregnant about want this baby. Okay. That's what I was thinking. I don't, and I'm glad you didn't have that baby. I because who, why? because why am I glad she didn't have the baby? Because she wasn't ready, she wasn't prepared, and God knows where she would have ended up if she had had that who baby. Who knows that the baby couldn't but have been our president of the United States one day? Or yes. Who knows that the baby could have been Right, but I'm saying, who knows the potential of that child? You, right. Everyone always says that child would have ended up in a bad situation. No, what if that child I, would have ended up I in a good the situation? Child would have ended up Hitler also. You never know. <laughs>
convicted of capital punishment, okay, somebody that's going to face that death sentence, has been convicted, obviously, of a horrible, heinous crime. Okay, this should be pretty obvious. I don't even understand how uh, the confusion arises on this argument. The baby has done nothing wrong. The baby is innocent. The baby has not committed a crime. Pro-life, in that sense, uh, we're not saying that therefore, no matter you know what the person does, any kind of crimes against humanity, that they shouldn't be punished even up to their life, because that is the severest punishment one can have. So to say, well, if you're against uh, uh, abortion, you should be against capital punishment, is just a basic category mistake. The baby has done nothing wrong. It is uh, it is the, the, the criminal uh, who's been convicted and deserves what uh, what he gets. And the Bible the Bible supports it. I'm sorry, it does. In Genesis, uh, you can see it there. Whoever uh, Genesis nine, whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall uh, be shed. Uh, you have you have numerous examples. I don't, I don't want to get into a debate on capital punishment, but my point is is to, to claim that somehow capital punishment and abortion are equivalent is just foolish. And then you have uh, you have my favorite you have my one of my favorite quotes to just explode uh, when Whoopi says, "If you don't like gay marriage, then don't marry a gay person." Think about this logic for a minute. If I said, whoopee, if you don't like slavery, then don't have a slave. Whoopee, if you don't like rape, then don't rape anyone. See, I hope it's it's pretty obvious, uh, you know, how absurd when you reduce that statement down to its logical conclusion. It's reductio ad absurdum. How foolish that is. It's not about if you don't like it, then don't do it. It's whether the thing is morally right or morally wrong and whether it hurts society. We want to do a show upcoming in the future on, on the issue of, of gay marriage. Uh, but these type of statements, again, they're, they're cute, they're quick, they're pithy, people laugh, they think they're funny. But again, you know, analyze it. For 15 seconds, folks, analyze it. And you see it just explodes on itself. Another one came right after she said that. Pro-lifers are against choice. You're anti-choice is what they say. And somehow if they just label you as anti-choice, well, that's going to make you uncomfortable because after all, who wants to be anti-choice? Think about this, folks. When it comes to rape, should people have the uh, freedom to rape who they want to rape? Should they have the freedom to murder who they want to murder? Should they have the freedom to steal from whoever they want to steal from? Right? There are some choices we should be anti. We should be against choices that hurt others. See, this whole debate revolves around the, the view on those women and most pro-choicers begging questions. What do I mean by that? Well, they assume from the outset the baby in the womb is not a human being. You see this several times in there. Well, if they don't want to have the baby, they shouldn't be forced to have the baby. Well, guess what? Life starts at conception. And so you don't have an option. 
the baby is already alive, you know, at conception. The, the chromosomes fuse. There's no more new genetic information added. The whole blueprint of, of who you're going to be, color of your hair, the color of your eyes. You know, we've talked about the, the defense from uh, Scott Klusendorf before with, uh, with SLED, and uh, we've shown that size, level of development, environment, and um, level of dependency, you know, those issues have nothing to do with whether or not uh, someone is a human being. Those are all uh, what we would call accidents in philosophy. You have essence and then you have accident. The size, uh, all that kind of stuff is, is no bearing on whether uh, the person is a human being or not. For example, uh, you know, Michael Jordan or his other guys that are tall basketball players are no more human than someone who may be a dwarf, for example. So, you know, those type of arguments are just, they're bad. So, you know, when they, they try and label it, well, you're against, uh, you're anti-choice. Well, yeah, uh, against some choices, I am anti. I do think it's wrong to uh, to take the life of an innocent human being. It is wrong to take the life of an innocent human being. The baby in the womb is an innocent human being, therefore, abortion is wrong. They went on to say this, nobody wants to have an abortion, says, uh, I can't remember the, the loud one on there. She says, nobody wants, Joy, that's her name, nobody wants to have an abortion, right? You hear this all the time. Keep it safe, rare, and legal. Well, why? Why is it uh, if, if, you know, you hear this all the time, well, you know, we don't want to have an abortion, but it's the last choice. Well, why don't you want to have an abortion? That's the question that really needs to be asked. Because if it's not a human being, if it's not murder, then what's the moral dilemma? See, there's no difference between that or go getting your, you know, going and getting your teeth pulled, a tooth pulled, or going and getting some other type of medical procedure. Right? You know, we may not want to go to the dentist. At least I don't. I hate going to the dentist. Uh, but there's not some moral in, in uh uh, conflict was inside of me, wondering, well, should I go to the dentist, should I not go to the dentist, and then, you know, feel guilty afterwards. I don't say that to make light of the situation. You know, my wife and I both go to the abortion clinic here locally. Uh, we are involved in the crisis pregnancy homes. We care about this issue, folks, because it is life and death. And I don't say that in a mocking way. And let me say this, too. I know there's, there's probably people... Who have uh, who are listening to the show or who will listen to the show who may have had an abortion, and I want to you know I want you to know there is forgiveness of course in Jesus Christ, but we can't treat these this this you know issue as these women are so it's just no big deal, and the logic that they employ well you're anti-choice or well nobody wants to have an abortion we gotta we gotta penetrate the people on these issues why why is it wrong to have an abortion? Or why don't you want to have uh, an abortion? Whoopi says this. She says, uh, well, I'm pro-life, but if you can't afford to have a child, you shouldn't be forced to give birth. I want you guys to think about this logic for a second. I'm going to give an example. I'm going to give a hypothetical. A lot of times when dealing with the abortion issue, one of the very first issues raised is the issue of rape. 
And they say, well, if a woman is raped, how can you force her to have the baby? Let me give you guys this scenario. Okay, uh, imagine uh, you're the mom, uh, you, you hear about a mom, she's washing the dishes. She decided to have the baby. And two years have passed, and she's washing the dishes, and all of a sudden, she has a flashback of what happened. And she gets extremely upset, she gets extremely emotional, she gets angry, and she goes, grabs the knife, and, and kills her child, the child who is a product of rape. We would all say, I would hope, that that is just morally repugnant and morally wrong. But see, if life begins at conception, which I believe it absolutely does, and the, and the science demonstrates it, there's not debate about this, right? Life starts at conception. So when Whoopi Goldberg says things like, well, if, if you don't, uh, if you can't afford the child, uh, you shouldn't have to have one, well, guess what? If you're pregnant, the, ch- the, the, the child is born, right? The child is already a living being. What if I have a family and three kids and I lose my job and I can't afford my kids? Can I kill them? Essentially, that's what she's justifying, so that's that's the point. Uh, that doesn't the fact you can't afford it or you don't want it. You know, well nobody wants. Uh, you know, what if the kid's not wanted? Okay, well what about orphans? Should we go kill the orphans because they're not wanted? How about the elderly? Well, guess what? Some would probably allow that. Some would probably be fine with euthanizing the elderly, and that's that's just a a totally unbiblical, ungodly view of life. Life is sacred because man is made in the image of God. She went on to say, and uh, we're going to get to our guest here in just a few minutes. Got a, got a couple minutes left. She went on to say, these women that have to make the decision to have an abortion, they go through hell. Again, why? What is it that is causing the conflict? You know, if it's not a human being in the womb, and it's just purely cells, and it's just, uh, you know, it's not a human being. Again, we don't have moral conflict when we go to the dentist. We may not want to go to the dentist, but again, there's there's no moral conflict. What is the agony over? Well, the agony over is is, uh, intuitively, I think we know. I think we know. I think there's some women that may be fooled by doctors. As as you heard, uh, I think it was uh, the, the lady, the black lady star, said when she was 17, she went to Planned Parenthood, and all they wanted to do was get her back in there and, and hurry up and have the abortion. They didn't care. <laughs> they just wanted the, they wanted to have the abortion, and that's because they want to get the money. It's exactly what it is. They don't care about these women. I don't believe that for a second. And they'll lie, and they'll manipulate, and they'll do whatever they have to do to get the money. If you don't believe me, check out some of these videos on YouTube where the, the women will actually go undercover into the Planned Parenthood sites, and you you see you see uh, what these people care about. So that being said, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up, and then we're going to get to our our guest. Listen, folks, abortion is a serious issue, and if you're a Christian and you are on the fence on this, I would encourage you. You really need to study the issues big time on this because the Bible is not unclear. And you can also look to, again, science, it demonstrates life begins at conception. And some say, well, maybe there's debate about this, and maybe we don't know. Well, think about this, and this happened with Obama. 
Obama said when he's being interviewed by Rick Warren, asked him when life began, he said, well, it's above my pay grade. Think about this, folks. If you're out hunting, for example, and you hear a rustling in in the bushes, and you don't know if it's a deer, or you could be your kid, you don't know. Do you just start blasting away? Of course not. If you don't know, you don't shoot. And for Obama, that was really clear. When he says, you know, it's above my pay grade, I don't know. Then why are you for abortion? If you don't know, then you could potentially be taking life. We've got to think about some of those issues, folks. Uh, life matters, and we can't, uh, cannot play around with this issue at all. So let's do this. We're going to go ahead and take a one-minute break, and then we, we're going to come back with my guest, uh, Mr. Fred Butler, and we will look at the King James-only controversy. Be back in one minute. This is John MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? Well, that's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's word and forget to respond. James said, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror. This is not some casual glance either, but a careful, observant stare. Yet even a long, hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace. Welcome back to Theology Matters, and we're going to kind of shift gears now from talking about abortion uh, to bringing on our guest, and we're going to look at the King James only controversy. Let me guy, let me uh, introduce our guest to you guys here. He is uh, Bible teacher and apologist Fred Butler. He's a graduate of the Master's Seminary and a volunteer coordinator at Grace to You Ministries. Uh, which is led by Dr. John MacArthur. As a former KJV-onlyist, Fred has uh, some great insight and research to share on this topic. And we will be uh, we will be taking your calls probably about uh, 7 o'clock. I'll, I'll open up the lines. Uh, but for now, we'll just go ahead and introduce our guest and talk about the topic a little bit. Fred, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Are you there? I can. Can you hear me, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you great. I just want to make sure I can, you can hear me. I've got this Bluetooth thing that my wife and I got, and and uh, I was having problems with it working earlier. So I wanted to make sure you could hear me. So you're good. Good, good deal. I know. Uh, I know we we're talking about the the volume issue. So I'm glad you can you can hear me okay. How how uh, how's the weather out there in in California today? Well, it dipped down into the. Uh, into the low 60s, and everyone is bundled up, and uh, a, a nice brisk wind coming off the Mojave Desert, and uh, leaves are kind of swirling around, and uh, to that, to us, this is like, you know, where it is in the Midwest right now, which I think is like, what, minus 18 degrees or something like that. We just don't have the snow. Yeah. Everything is still sunny. It's just cold. But 60 degrees. Yeah, my brother, 
I've got two brothers and a sister that live out in um, in Utah, and he just sent me uh, yesterday some pictures. They just got ten inches of snow. Huh. And uh, I don't think I've I'm seen jealous. snow in like yeah, I haven't seen that in years. Not not in real life. Yeah. I'm seeing pictures and stuff. <laughs> but anyway, I, you know what? I'm a I'm a huge snow fan too, so I hate the fact that uh, where I'm at, we you know we get it about once a year, but it's it's nothing serious. <laughs> Although they treat it like it's serious, everybody shuts the stores down, the schools shut down, and you'd think we were in for something serious. But yeah, normally no, by it's noon, a storm watch. Um, it's a it's a storm watch out here. The storm watch 213 or 2013 or you know, and they'll have like a guy down at the airport. The reporter, you know, is standing in the snow, the snow flurry. <laughs> Anyhow. Well, Fred, tell us about yourself a little bit. Um, well, I am originally from Arkansas uh, in Missouri, and uh, I came out here back in the oh, early to mid-'90s to go to school and uh, attended the Master's Seminary and graduated and uh, I had been working at Grace to You kind of part time at the at the for those years I was going to school, uh, primarily to pay bills and that sort of thing, and hadn't planned on staying around here. I was going to probably try to go back home. And uh, God in His providence, uh, the week that I was uh, graduating, an opportunity opened up. A fellow that I was serving with. Uh, part-time as kind of my, I guess, manager or supervisor. He was retiring, and they needed someone in a pinch to kind of uh, fulfill that area of need, and so I agreed to do it. And in the meantime, I got married, and uh, then we started uh, getting children and renting a house and then buying a house and and so some 13 years later, I am still here. Uh, my primary duties is sort of overseeing the uh, volunteer ministry. And we have probably, oh, I'd say about 130 volunteers or active senior saints. Uh, a lot, most of them probably attend Grace or they've been there for a long time. And before that, they attended J. Vernon McGee's church uh, before he passed away. Oh. Uh, wow. <laughs> it's kind of an it's an interesting little heritage, and um, they come out and they package CDs and books and still some cassette tapes and receipts, things that we mail out of our ministry, and uh, they they're just a delight to serve and uh, they love on us. It's like having a hundred sets of grandparents, I guess you want to call it that. They are just a blessing uh, to work with. Um, other duties included, uh, you know, as we have become more of an Internet presence at Grace to You, uh, I've had opportunity to write articles and I help sort of, I guess you could say, monitor comments and that sort of thing comes into the blog, answer questions sometimes, uh, though that's not my primary area of focus. Uh, but that's given me opportunity to kind of keep my Preaching habits sharpened. Uh, my volunteers also let me uh, preach to them, uh, so that's, that's kind of a blessing too. So that's kept me in the Word. It keeps me uh, able to study. And so we, 
I got a lot of my other stuff. If I can plug my other website, I I have a website a friend put together for me called Fred's Bible Talk dot uh, com, and there you can hear uh, a lot of my messages that have been recorded, and they're more of a devotional style because uh, I'm talking during a lunch break, you know, to a group of people sitting at right. tables uh, eating their sandwiches, but. Um, I've tried to hit on various topics that they don't normally encounter, like um, talked about apologetic methodology, and we've talked about the King James stuff, and like we're going to talk about today, uh, creation and evolution stuff. I did a series on gay marriage before gay marriage was popular and a big trendy thing in our society, and uh, also some Bible studies, um, annihilationism. I, I tried to cover things that were kind of pertinent in the evangelical blogosphere uh, that they may not necessarily get at grace uh, as well as just staying in the word uh, I have a goal to maybe teach through the book of 1 Corinthians at the turn of the year uh, so I try to keep them you know just in the word and and uh, what we're all about serving the Lord there at our ministry and, I, and as that little clip said right before I came on about you know unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, I think is the Grace to You motto. <clears throat> yeah, you know, John MacArthur's ministry, I think, probably more than any, um, you know, as far as as far as far preaching goes, I don't think anyone has affected me as much as, as his preaching. Back in the day before I had, uh, you know, iPod and all that, I would, I would actually have a, uh, you know, the old uh, cassette recorders, right? Oh yeah. I would take these Very these 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 cassette recorders and I would put it the speaker and uh on my computer and I would record all of uh all of John MacArthur's messages and then I worked shift and I would I would take them uh to work and listen to them all night. And I ended real? up with like hundreds wow. Yeah, I've got hundreds of hours of his on audio tape by that way. I was just I was so hungry for the Word of God, and I just was so uh, transformed by by John MacArthur's preaching and teaching. It's just yeah. just uh, amazing. But I, you know what? I've yeah. enjoyed your, your your blog as well. I know you do the the hip and thigh, and I've got to read a lot yeah. of your your stuff. I really really enjoy your work. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, we had a professor in seminary that uh, challenged us. Uh, early on, I think before I was before there was even an internet invented, before Al Gore invented the internet, as the saying goes now, uh, <laughs> he would say, "Listen, you guys are going to go out in the ministry. You need to have a writing ministry." And he based a lot of that on the fact that most of the really good uh, remember, I guess you could say, the guys that we keep in mind that we still read today, like the Puritans and these old Baptists, they wrote consistently and their sermons would be written out and when they would write letters to a congregation or to a person in the church addressing some you know theological issue they would handwrite those letters out and we we were challenged you know keep an active writing ministry you need to learn to write read and digest all of your stuff but then learn to you know to translate that into writing so that you can give that to your congregation that, for some reason, stuck to me, and because um, it is a discipline you sort of have to 
you know, grow in. And so I've loved it. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, when the Internet was allowing for blogs, and you could go to Blogger uh, and get a free blog, I basically went there one afternoon and signed up in three easy steps and started that. And it took me, I don't know, maybe six months to kind of get in it look like something readable. But it gave me an outlet, you know, to keep that sharp. And so I was able to, you know, deal with, you know, current day topics and things of that nature and be funny. I try to be, I'm probably more goofy than anything. But, you know, I want to keep, you know, Christianity, but the fun and the fundamentalists, I guess you could say. And uh, so I've always tried to write and be on top of those things, and, and Blogger and WordPress and the Internet's given me that opportunity. Uh, I'm glad that you guys are blessed. Um, what is really kind of a hobby for a lot of folks is that something of a ministry or it can become a ministry. <clears throat> Absolutely, that's that's absolutely right. And and uh, gentlemen like yourself, with uh, with so much knowledge, and uh, you know, are able to able to benefit from it. Cripplegate is another another blog site that I yes. frequent. Those guys are great. Mm-hmm. They are abs- absolutely. So I know grace to you. Uh, pro- people are probably seeing the. Uh, I made several posts about uh, you coming on and with John MacArthur, and they. Uh, I know you guys have been kind of the. <laughs> The, uh, the center of the spotlight for the last, uh, yeah. I guess, month or so with the Strange Fire Conference. That is, and that uh, is true. you know, I I watched, I watched uh, every talk, and I loved it. I thought it was great. I, I don't think I, you know, I couldn't agree more with uh, with the stuff <laughs> that was said. So yeah, that's that's good to hear. Um, John addressed that a little bit on Sunday night. I think he had, like, one more message that he – I mean, this is obviously something on his heart, and as it is on a lot of people's hearts. And uh, he was – I think there's even in work right now a follow-up book to that, answering a lot of the criticisms we got and uh, trying to focus down on the serious folks. I mean, obviously you have all kinds of cranks and people who don't, who are just kind of hating on us and hate on us, but there are some serious-minded men out there who have offered some good challenges, and they're worthy of having to tackle and interact with, and so we're hoping to do that. I don't know when that's supposed to come out. I would bet probably here in the next year or so, but um, yeah, it has been. It's been a blessing. We've had a lot of encouraging testimonies as well, you know, as well as the Backlash, but we're yeah. weathering that, so it's been good. Now, most people, though, that I'll, I'll be honest, the most people that I've talked to that really get angry and upset, um, it's it, they haven't really, you know, listened to the talks and they haven't read the book. They just uh, yeah. they just, uh, they're they're hearing talking points and they're getting angry and they're not thinking. You know, I I grew up in an Assembly of God church. In fact, I. I uh, lived in Utah, and uh, I was born in 78, and in 84, my mother and father converted from Mormonism uh, to Christianity, and it was through the Assemblies of God Church. My father was an Assembly of God pastor, and, you know, so kind of growing up in that whole movement, and then um, it was actually, it, it's funny, because I was actually listening to, I was a security guard, so I had a lot of time on my hands, 
Uh, so I was able to sit and listen to to guys like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. And, man, I just knew there was something so different about what these guys are saying compared to what I'm getting at church. And, really, that was yep. really my, my introduction to Reformed theology, and that is what really led me uh, away from from the whole Pentecostal movement. And, uh, yeah, that was that's kind of my testimony, too. <laughs> yeah, that? yeah, you know, I love our, our, love our Pentecostal brothers and that, but I think, you know, there's there's a lot of air, air in that. So, anyway, yeah, we just wanted to I, say thank you guys for doing that conference. Yeah, I will pass that along to folks. They will uh, appreciate that. They'll probably all download this so they'll hear it <laughs> whenever they, um, when they, uh, when I, when this comes available, I think, on the Internet. I, I, my, a lot of my friends are like, oh, I want to hear that. And so I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll be on. So they'll hear those, those uh, thanks and That'll be good. It will be. It'll be podcasted as soon as the show is over. It'll be up and and ready to ready to go. So all right, we'll definitely so Fred, let them know. Fred, tell us how you got interested in this in this topic, and and maybe explain what is the King James only controversy. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, it might be helpful to back up a little bit and give uh, something of a background. Sure. And uh, when I I was a kid that was raised uh, in a nominal Christian home. We had, uh, and I had a family that went to church, uh, like a lot of families in America, and I ran around a lot of game circles, and I drank a lot of red punch, and did a lot of, uh, you know, retreats and that sort of thing. Uh, My family was originally Methodist, so we were uh, in a kind of a liberal church growing up until all that, and I was in Oh, junior high, high school or so. Uh, when we moved to Arkansas from Missouri, we started to attend my mother's family's church that they were raised in, and it was a free will Baptist church. And so they took the Bible a little more seriously than what I was used to or had been used to. And I, uh, it was something that was interesting to me. I was interested in the uh, scriptures and I actually had a good Sunday school teacher that introduced me to some some good stuff, and but I wasn't really saved until I went away to college. And after my uh, freshman year, actually, it was the very last week of my freshman year in college that God was pleased to save me, and He gave me saving faith, and I believed, and I followed the gospel, and came to Christ, and. Um, I was part immediately of a Southern Baptist church. And so when I went away for summer, the youth director there, the college pastor, who was a former Chicago Bears linebacker guy, he uh, had given me a whole bunch of good stuff to sort of work through over the summer. And so when I came back to school as a sophomore, I was all excited for my faith. I was ready to go out and tackle the, the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and all of the cults and everything. Uh, if you're familiar with Southern Baptist uh, oh, history back oh, from the last 20 years or so, you know that there was this huge titanic struggle between two factions in the denomination uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, between those who, well, really, the, the Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton arm of the denomination who were not, uh, buying into the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture, 
they were basically uh, liberal in their approach to the Bible, and they were wanting to move the denomination away from a, from an emphasis in the authority of God's word. Uh, thankfully, God God prevailed in that, as He always does yes. in those situations. And the uh, conservative faction was able to. <laughs> well, to Adrian Rogers and some of these old guys that are now deceased and with the Lord, that they stood the line, and uh, it was great. And uh, and I think even one of the big issues was the abortion issue you were just talking about. Uh, that was right. uh, one of the means that was people were like, wait a minute, we banned in the Bible. We're going to be believing in abortion and a number of other things, you know. It's, and so when the conservatives went out, here I am at my church that was thankfully a conservative church. It was one of those churches that was in the conservative side of the denomination. And my uh, pastor and my college pastor, uh, you know, they kept this issue kind of in the forefront, in the pulpit, and in the Sunday school class. And so I was on fire for the word and the authority of God's word. And I had a friend, a sweet guy, um, who had actually been saved out of grace and had come back to Arkansas and brought John MacArthur tapes with him, and that's where I was actually introduced to John MacArthur was through this fella. But he was also interested in King James onlyism because he had come across a book written by a pastor in Oklahoma that basically, uh, I think it probably was his work that he may have taught to his church, and he kind of put it into this, you know, self-published, you know, kind of paperback. And he, my friend, uh, got a hold of this book and bought like a case of them and was handing it out to folks at the church. And I was one of them that received the copy and took it home, and I devoured it because he was talking about things regarding the Bible that I had never, ever encountered before in my life. And he was making it an issue. It's like, look, you got alternative Bibles out there. Only the King uh-huh. James reflects the uh, Word of God here. And uh, he, um, I, I was impressed with his arguments as a kind of a unstable young man. And um, he, uh, one of the things that really stuck to me was his uh, reproduction in his book of these articles by a fellow out of New Zealand who had put together a series of studies on how to explain those apparent Bible problems in the Old Testament, like if there's 700 horsemen over in this passage and 7,000 horsemen over here in the same passage in Chronicles, and it looks like it contradicts. Well, how do you explain that? And so he gave this uh, response that, well, look, if you look at the King James, notice how the, how the King James will make it so that, you know, you can believe the Bible and doesn't put a footnote in the bottom saying this is a copious error or anything of that sort. And I really, really appreciated his uh, handling of that. I mean, in, in my mind, I was I had no other really resource uh, that was telling me differently, and so I thought, wow, that, that's, that's true. And I became so impressed with the guy's arguments that I actually called him. I found his number in Oklahoma and gave him a call and talked to him for a long time on the phone, and he gave me a ton of offers and so I started, uh, this is back before the Internet, so you couldn't go through Amazon. You had to, or through their ministry website. I mean, you had to call the people and 
send it snail mail. And so I was writing to uh, D.A. Uh, Waite and to David Cloud and Peter Ruckman. I shudder to think of that, but I was writing to him and all of these groups of people that um, were King James only and buying their books and getting their newsletters and getting their information. And within probably, I would say, a good four or five months, I was more than, I guess you could say, I was I was becoming a, a rather staunch King James only. I, I certainly became a pest at church. I would grab people and, and then have an NIV or something, and I'd tell them, oh, you're reading the, you're reading the modern-day perversion. It's not a version. It's a perversion. And you need to read the King James. And let me show you some things. And uh, I had my parents buy me this wide-margin King James Bible that I still have to this day. I should have gone out in my library and grabbed it off the shelf. Uh, but I forgot that. But it, it had the, I had all these notes that I'd put in there and cross-references and stuff. So I'd show people that. And uh, over uh, just, uh, I mean, within a year, I was just kind of known as this guy you, you wanted to avoid probably because I was going to do nothing but talk about this issue. And uh, and so there I was, <laughs> the King James only. My church, regrettably, uh, did not have the sophistication. I mean, they were sweet, godly people, but um, right. they did not really have the know-how, as it were, to kind of counter my arguments. No one had really, I guess, addressed that subject at any length at the time. And there might have been some people somewhere, but, you know, I wasn't aware of them. And um, so, yeah, it, it was something that really just got down into my bones, and I was ready to preach that and to proclaim that. And, and uh, you know, I was thinking about all of my sermons at the time, very rudimentary sermons, but they'd all be around the King James text. In fact, one of my first... <laughs> My first sermons I ever preached at my mother's church was on that subject, and uh, yeah, when I, I, I wish I when, when I when I first got saved, uh, one of the issue one, one of the one of the major things for me was uh, creation versus evolution, and I remember mm-hmm. really how God saved me. It was a debate between um, it was a debate between uh, Anthony Flew and Gary Habermas on the resurrection. And it was it was that night God used that debate uh, to save me, but I had this this massive interest uh, in origins of creation versus evolution because my grandfather, who was really like my best friend, he was an atheist and he was a hard evolutionist, and so when I when I first got saved, uh, I just devoured the creation evolution issue. And one of the debates that had also came on right around that time was Ken Hovind and Hugh Ross on Anchorburn. Oh, yeah. And, I remember that. Yep. Yeah, and so I started following Kent Hovind, like, big time. And, <laughs> um, and you know, I appreciate you know, a lot of the stuff that he does. I'm not a big fan anymore. I'm definitely still, you know, a young earth creationist. Um, but one of the things with, with Kent Hovind is he was very big on the, the King James only uh he was. You. That's true. Yeah, and that that affected me. So I, I thought, well, you know, he's because I was just I was a dumb kid. I'm still a dumb kid, but I was, you know, I was a young dumb kid, and he's so smart on all these other issues. I just thought, therefore, he's right. 
on this issue. And I remember I wouldn't yeah. read anything but the King James Bible for years. Yep. And I love the King James just because of the uh, the majesty of the language. I mean, obviously, there are some extremely, how did you say, I mean, there's some really gripping language. Uh, even my blog site, Hip and Thigh, is taken from a, it's a Hebraism from, from Judges 15, where it talks about how Samson, you know, basically laid a big whipping on those Philistines. But the King James translates the phrase hip and thigh, which is what that means. You know, it, 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 there's, some, there's some really excellent majesty with the language. Uh, the issue for me is when the people turn it into, like, this is the standard Bible, and any other Bible has been corrupted, and you cannot you know, use it in any fashion or you're going to risk, you know, cur- you know, bankrupting your soul or whatever. And that is where I draw the line. And um, it is it's something that, I, I, like with you, I've encountered many people. It's in the same boat. You come out of, you get saved in a really solid church. It teaches you the gospel, but they read from the King James and it's there that you sort of get introduced to that, and, and you don't really know any better because you're not taught any different, you know. And right. so, <clears throat> but anyway, here let me let me switch gears. Sure. God and God in His grace. God in His grace didn't leave me there, and uh, and we we serve a really. A very compassionate Lord who allows you to, I think, in a way, kind of grow, and He uses these things in your life. And uh, two things eventually brought me away from that position that I think are uh, vital uh, to kind of how I see this view now. <clears throat> the first one is that, um, thankfully, the Lord allowed me, like you, to be uh, introduced to really solid Bible teachers. So I had I had the John MacArthur tapes like you did. I was part of their lending library. I was getting the the um, getting the lectures from and the sermons through the mail, and I've listened through First John and through the Sermon on the Mount and all of John's famous you know messages that he's done over the years. I got introduced to R.C. Sproul and uh, J- James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, who died? Wow. Uh, oh, I don't know, about twelve years yeah. or so ago. And one um, of my he, you know, absolute du- favorites. Yeah, one of my yeah, absolute favorites. Love him. <laughs> and I would, and I was, I was listening to those folks, and um, and in my zeal to be a King James only and to promote that view, on the other side over here, God was, God was putting down roots in my theology. And so with the people that I was getting exposed to, like Puritans and other individuals like that, A.W. Pink, um, I basically became a Calvinist. (laughs) So I had a really high view of God's sovereignty. I had a very high view of of, uh, the soteriology, the salvation of uh, of God and what he has done for man, the, the total depravity of men and their need for a savior and the and the sufficient actual atonement of Christ and the 
in the coming to salvation and the perseverance, all of those things was getting down in my heart. And so when I came to seminary, you know, when I came to seminary, I was still a King James onlyist, but I was more, I was, I was beginning to be transfixed more to the theology that I was learning at the seminary. And I was extremely, um, or how would you say, uh, you know, I was getting exposed to a lot of good stuff. And I think that was one of the things that really anchored me was having a, a, a knowledge of the Word of God from solid men that kind of kept me anchored uh, to grounded, you know, to reality, as it were. And, um, and then the second thing that got to me was Gail Ripplinger. Believe it or not, Gail Ripplinger was used as a Lord that drives me away from King James onlyism, because when her monst- her monstrous book came out uh, in 1993, I think that was the book that James White was moved to write his King James only controversy. Uh, when that book yeah. came out, there I was. I, I, I got it immediately. The buzz about it was, "Oh, you got to read this book. She nails this thing down." Well, of course, at the time, you did not know she was a woman. Everyone thought it was a guy because she only went by her initials, G.A. Ripplinger, because in her circles, you know, a woman writing a book can be kind of problematic. But, but so I, 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 well, I got to get this book. And the book, if you're not familiar with it, is basically this uh, a conspiracy theory, really, that uh, the uh, – she focuses her attention on uh, – B.F. Westcott and uh, F.J.A. Hort, those two men who uh, were instrumental, two Anglican bishops that were instrumental in getting us our um, the revised version and uh, probably producing one of the first modern translations beyond the King James. Uh, but those men were uh, written about in her book as they were these underground cultists that uh, were involved in the spiritual societies in London underground in the Victorian age, and that they their whole purpose and what they were doing was to slowly indoctrinate people to think in New Age terms by creating a new Bible version that basically watered down, you know, the doctrines of the faith and sort of turned Jesus into this, you know, platonic God figure, and, you know, she had all of these elaborate uh, views on what they were attempting to do. Now, to me, who is still in the process of being anchored in my soul and still a little uh, wet behind the ears and unlearned, I thought she, she should have won the Pulitzer Prize. Why isn't she getting an this This book is fantastic. And so I wanted to get more information on Westcott and Hort. And to God's grace, I was at a library in the West Coast. It's probably one of the best theological libraries around, right there at my fingertips, just a block away from me to walk there on a Sunday afternoon or, you know, in the evening or whatever. And so I took all of her citations. Her book was heavily footnoted, uh, which is to her detriment, I guess she just assumes people were going to take her research at for what it was and not actually go back and research what she had put there. 
And so I, I went and I took her citations and I began to pull their books off the shelf, the collected works of these guys, and was looking at what she was looking at. And it was I wasn't there 30 minutes with these books laid out before me on a table. And I'm realizing, you know, she's not being honest with her research. She is, wow. this, is not what, this is not what this guy is saying. Uh, one of her big claims was that uh, she was claiming that B.F. Westcott was involved in the Theophysty Society, uh, which was kind of the spiritualist society in the 1800s, and she connects him to this guy named uh, William Wynn Westcott. And she claims, she kind of speculates, and uh, thankfully she even says, I said, it's very possibly that this is the same guy as B.F. Westcott because of these things. And she asserts that, you know, he, he went under these, uh, this uh, pseudonym of William Wynn in order to hide his true identity. And, but the reality is, is that there really was a William Wynn Westcott. Uh, other than them having, I think I put in my article something like when I was writing about this, you know, other than having a, an affinity for facial hair, the two guys are utterly different, two different individuals. And she was just basically using this loose association or creating this possibility that this could be B.F. Westcott in order to smear his character and to tie him closer to the, you know, to this conspiracy that she was putting together. I, I, just, I just found that to be ridiculous, and it really troubled me. And in her book, one of the other things she kind of went after, as a side note, was the doctrines of grace. She hated Calvinism, and she talked about the five-pointed pentagram of Calvinism. And it just sort of oh. dawned on me after after reading that book. <laughs> wow! Begin, isn't that amazing? The five, you and I are the five. The five points. Five is the number of death. <laughs> if, you, if you're familiar, this is this is totally an aside. Uh, and I can't think of the guy's name. Uh, Lawrence something. I, I can't remember his name. He wrote a big book called The Dark Side of Calvinism. In that book, oh, yeah, George Bryson. George, yeah, no, George Bryson. No, 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 no. This guy, this, I don't know who you're talking about. This guy is someone different. He used to be with Peter Ruffman's ministry, and they had a big falling oh, out. Wow. Um, I, something Lawrence. I can't remember his name offhand. It's escaping me. But he had a book with the same title as Bryson's. And his was much fatter, and it was more sinister looking than George Bryson's book. But his claim in there was that. The five, the number five is the number of death, and if you see the, you know, the five there is a pentagram, it's five, and the five points of Calvinism, and so Calvinism <laughs> leads to death, and and then uh, you know he forgot to mention that Jesus had five letters in it, and uh, you know <laughs> other names. Uh, in oh the yeah. But at any rate. Um, all of that to say is I began I began to notice, you know something? King James people really don't like the doctrines of grace. That's just weird. It wasn't just Ripplinger's wow. book. She kind of alerted that to me, alerted it to me, and I and I was like, Well, I was more here reading from D. A. Wade or David Cloud or some of these other guys and they would just hammer on the doctrines of grace. And I remember reading one King James only guy. He wasn't a big person. It was uh, I can't remember his name right off hand, 
but um, he had written an article just talking about how Calvin and turns and he's into this death camp kind of thing and and how Mao, before he took over China, went to Geneva to study his torture methods and and I'm just I'm I'm thinking really, yeah, Chairman Mao went to Geneva to to, to study torture methods uh, methods from Calvin really I mean just it was just absurd oh, and, and yeah. knowing and knowing the men that they slandered in their books like. James White because he's actually friendly with a lot of my friends at Grace and I would encounter him and I would meet him he was not this mean bugabear guy you know that was this evil Calvinist I mean he was a really nice guy and he was smart and he knew his stuff and I just thought to myself if they are wrong about Calvinists as I know that they are could they not be wrong about these other things? Are they misrepresenting the facts? And I think at that moment, it, it was sort of this slow dawning of the light, you know, and it took a little time, but as the Lord began to press this into my heart, uh, anchored with the good theology and seeing just sort of the hysterical research that um, King James only has had, I just realized this, there's, this, this is a problem. You can't defend this. It's indefensible. And so I began to actually be led into other good writers who were writing against King James Onlyism. And from them, I just basically I had a renewal of mind on how we can look at our Bibles and how we can actually trust that uh, even though there might be slight differences and so forth in modern versions, there's not a, a conspiracy of heretics trying to corrupt my Bible and destroy my faith. You know, these are good right. men who are trying to honestly wrestle with the text. They're trying to get back to what did the apostles and the original writers write and what is God saying to us. And sure, there are liberals like Bart Ehrman and other individuals who want to take that and they want to use it as a bully club, billy club against evangelical Christians, certainly. But that's not all of them. And these things right. are there, and we shouldn't just dismiss it as some kind of conspiracy of satanic darkness to destroy ourselves. Right. There's another explanation that's easily explained that honors God. And so that's how I kind of got out of that whole group. It's it's a serious charge, you know, when you're when you are you're claiming that, you know, the translators of the NASB and ESV and NIV and all that 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 they're you know purposely trying to mislead people. And I mean, it's a yep. it is it is serious uh, accusation against you know fellow believers. You ain't kidding. And and one of the one of the NASB translators taught one of my classes and he was one of our big teachers at our seminary and uh, Robert Thomas who was involved in the translation of the NASB as a younger guy and you know he was a scary teacher because I mean he was hard (laughs) to to take his classes and he'd kill you academically wise because he'd dump on you all the stuff you had to read but other than that he was a big sweet teddy bear who loved the Lord and wanted to honor Christ and all that he did, including uh, promoting, you know, an accurate rendering of God's word into English that people can understand 
so they can worship God better. He wasn't trying to destroy men's souls. I mean, it's just that's just you're right about that. That is exactly the case. You cannot level such a serious accusation against people who love the Lord like that. That's right. Let's do this, uh, Fred. If you don't mind, let's take a one-minute break, and uh, if if it's okay with you, we can open up the phone lines, and we'll sure, just keep sure. kind of going through, our, through the outline and let you kind of keep teaching. And and uh, I know there's probably a lot of people that want to call in and talk to uh, talk to to Fred, and maybe you have friends or family who are kind of caught up in this movement, and you have some questions. Uh, we're we're uh, well. Fred's here. I'm here to point you to Fred, <laughs> and he can answer answer the questions for you. I hope I can uh, answer your questions. I'll probably freeze. This will be the moment when I freeze. Uh, <laughs> I'll email me. Uh, well, yeah. we'll try. We will, we'll, we'll go to, we'll go to a commercial break if that happens. But I'm not uh, I'm not worried. I don't think that'll happen at all. So what we'll do that we'll take a break in one minute and phone lines seven six zero. Five four two three nine oh seven seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven. Call in and we will ask your questions to Mr. Butler. Welcome to the one minute apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute apologist to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologist to provide credible answers to curious questions. Doctor Howe, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Jehovah's Witnesses, let's look at what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel from the Old Testament, who became a man in the New Testament, did his work for God, and then now is Michael the Archangel again. So he's not God in the flesh as Christianity and the Bible has always taught. What would they say about salvation? Most of these groups, in fact, I don't know any of these groups that, that, that doesn't say that salvation is by works. And Jehovah's Witnesses are very explicit that a person cannot be saved by faith alone, but has to do the appropriate works in order to be able to be with God after death. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. All right, welcome back to Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and uh, be sure again to join us uh, next week, same time, uh, we're going to continue dealing with uh, the apologetic and theological issues. And next week, we are going to have Rob Bowman on the show. Figured it would be a good time, uh, considering it's you know Christmas time. 
we're going to explore the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're going to get pretty in depth into that. Uh, it's one of the one of the you know cardinal uh, doctrines of Christianity that is under attack and has been uh, since the beginning. And so, uh, Mr. Bowman is going to show us how to navigate around the objections and show us how to how to answer some of those objections against the doctrine of the Trinity. So join us next week. Uh, Mr. Butler, are you with us? I am. I was looking for my King James Bible, but I cannot okay. find it. I have been moved. I want to have to pull this from my memory. <laughs> but no, no, I was out in my uh, my library. I have a new King James. I'm kicking it old school here. I don't have my Bible works. My Bible works is on my work computer, and uh, okay. so I'm going to have to flip through pages and stuff. So I'm sorry about that. I'm old school today. No, that's that's <laughs> no problem at all. I was I was going to play a clip. It's about two minutes of Samuel Gipp, uh, and this is when he was on uh, the John Ankerberg show, and they did a, a discussion with James White and Dan Wallace and a few other people. Um, and I wanted oh, to yeah, get yeah, your yeah. reaction. Let me, let me play okay. that clip, and then we'll get your, your reaction to that. I'd like your, your thoughts on that. And I'd like to start with you, Dr. Samuel Gipp. Uh, you've written uh, quite a few books uh, on this uh, topic in your answer book, a help, uh, book for Christians. You have said that uh, the supposition that there must be a perfect translation in every language is erroneous and inconsistent with God's, approven, or God's, God's proven practice. Why do you believe... Sam, that the King James Version of the Bible is the only perfect translation today, and what's more, that if these guys were going to do a translation into Swedish or Ethiopian or some other language, that they're not to use any of the Greek text, but they're to use the 1611 English text to translate those other versions. Why? Well, the first reason, I, of course, picking the Bible above all books that are called holy books, I accept the Bible academically because of, pro of uh, fulfilled prophecy. Now, when I, when I give the Bible that, that uh, inspiration from God, then I take its uh, statements on itself as far as inspiration and preservation. Now, at that point, it's got to become an uh, argument of faith, not, not academics. In other words, you're going to find places where the King James Bible doesn't agree with uh, even uh, the Textus Receptus or something like that. So I believe the King James Bible is the preserved Word of God. I don't call it the inspired Word of God. I call it the preserved Word of God. And English is without a doubt the language of, um, of the world. It is the language of missions in this world today. Um, the reason I say that there doesn't have to be a perfect Bible in every other language is because the reason that's inconsistent with what God did is when he inspired the Old Testament, uh, he inspired it predominantly in one language. I know there was some Chaldean, but predominantly it was in Hebrew. When he put it in Hebrew, he did not feel obligated to inspire an Egyptian. He did not feel uh, obligated to inspire uh, a, a copy of it in every other language of the world at that time. When he brought out the New Testament, when he inspired that, he inspired it in Greek. He did not feel obligated uh, to have even a Hebrew copy for his own Jewish people. So if a guy's in Russia and he wants to really get to the truth of the Word of God, would he have to learn English? Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, let me go to uh, Don Wilkins over there. And All right. We'll go ahead and stop that there. And uh, real quick before we get Mr. Uh, Butler's comments on that. Oh, uh, man. On... <laughs> let me get, let me get the phone line out real quick. 
Can sure, you let me sure, give the sure. phone number out real quick? And we'll go right to you, Fred. 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. What do you, what'd you think about that? Um, yes, that is uh, Samuel Gibbs. I've heard him say that before. Now, he said a bunch of things that I didn't catch before, like something about the Oh, something about the Chaldean. I wasn't really sure. I guess he said, I guess he was saying that the uh, God hadn't, didn't see a need to translate it into Chaldean or the the Egyptian or something like that. But at the time, God is dealing with a specific people (laughs) that he was giving his revelation to, which is the, which was uh, the people of Israel who had a distinct language of Hebrew. When you come to the New Testament, um, he did write it, he did inspire it, the apostles to write it in Greek, because at that time, you know, common Greek was sort of the language spoken everywhere. So it, when you understand the history behind the language that the Bible was originally written in, there is, uh, it kind of contradicts what he's trying to say there. He's claiming that, you know, the King James uh, when it came to 60 and 11, I'm guessing God just fixed and froze his word in the 1611 edition. Now, interestingly, when I was out digging around for my King James Bible, uh, I don't know if you rushed out to Walmart two or three years ago when um, they had the 400th anniversary of the King James. It would have been, um, well, two years ago. In, uh, in uh, 2011, they did a reprint a facsimile reprint of the original 1611 with the big flowery Elizabethan English uh, language. And, I mean, it's it's almost impossible to read. It's like looking at Latin, uh, even though it's English. And so my question to him would be why, okay, if God did that, why would he then, you know, why is there changes? Because the translation that he uses is like the 17... 69 edition more than likely and and Oxford and Cambridge universities produced two different editions of the King James I mean they're virtually identical except for some stylistic things and nuances but you know okay which one you know why, what's going on here why did God desire them to standardize the letters and to do some later changes of the wording and uh, that sort of thing. How do you explain the marginal notes? I mean, the King James uh, translators put in the middle column, you know, alternative translations to difficult passages in the uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So um, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. If I had my texture, I can find them. But they would find a you know, where well, actually, I think it was in Zechariah. I think it is. I'm pulling this off the top of my head. Um, where it talks about he's pierced my hands and my feet. Well, the King James only us are going to go and say, well, that's obviously a prophecy of, um, you know, of Christ dying on the cross. And I and I would probably agree with them. But then there's also an alternative reading about, you know, surrounding me with lions or something along that line. I might be conflating passages here, so I don't want to belabor it as too much, but the idea is you would have different readings like that in other Hebrew texts, and, and, and even in the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Hebrew 
uh, in the Greek, um, that just reads a little bit different. Now, the meaning of the text is kind of the same because he's talking about, you know, the person that's being persecuted and it's going to be killed or whatever. But at the same time, you still have that reading there. Well, the King James translators saw fit to include that. Do we ignore their research there? I mean, does the inspiration of the text kind of fall outside the little margins there? And as soon as you get in the middle column, it's no longer inspired. It's just sort of an interesting little flourish that they put there in the in the center column. Or you know, how does he explain those things? And in my opinion, he's really hiding or he's keeping the word of God from people because, you know, that guy that's out in Papua New Guinea or that guy who is in Indonesia or out in the backwaters of China who only speak Mandarin Chinese and reads that, well, that, that, that you're going to have to t- teach them an entire language and, and, and make it in Elizabethan English, you know, with the these and the thous in order for them to get access to God's revelation, whereas the easier thing is to have people who can translate the language into their language, and then they can have a copy of it. I just, I, that to me, that's common, stymieing yeah, the Word of God, common, not helping it. Yeah, it just seems to be just common sense. You know, it's, it's, it just floors me how, uh, how it just escapes. It's, it escapes them. It just, it's, it just floors me. And someone goes, some would go as far to say that you can even correct the Greek with the King James Version. Is that correct as well? Yep. Yes, and if you are uh, familiar with, I believe it was uh, on James White's program, uh, Steve Anderson, who is infamous for his, you know, uh, peeing against the wall video, if you know what I'm talking about, and uh, getting uh-huh. himself... Uh, you need to go. And, uh, I'll have to send you a link or something. It's a, it's it's a it'll it's a jaw dropping spectacle to behold. Um, but his uh, he's also been tased by the Arizona Border Patrol for crossing. Or I don't know exactly what that was. I just remember seeing him getting tased by the Arizona Border Patrol. Um, but he was on James White's program, or he was. I guess James White was interviewed by him for some. Pot boiler documentary that he's going to put up on YouTube here sooner or later. This guy, and he was arguing with Dr. White about the word hell, and how hell is a better translation, so it's a better word to use, even though there's, you know, you have Sheol and Gehenna and you know Hades, which basically give us the doctrine of after you die. You don't. You're not immediately cast into the lake of fire. I mean, there seems to be a very clear indication that we're kind of in this holding place until the resurrection, until the great white throne judgment, when all stand before the Lord. And but when you use his um, approach of just making hell sort of the go-to word across the board, you take away all of those little nuances that the original language brings that the King James translators didn't necessarily bother to translate for one reason or another. And you, you know, it can really mess up your doctrine of hell. Uh, you need to hear James White's um, discussion about this because it was really insightful. Um, another, another example is the word doulos. I go to a fellowship group called doulos. Doulos means oh, cool. slaves. 
I like okay. that. And my, yeah, my pastor has written a book. He wrote a book um, addressing the whole idea of what it means to be slaves. It really was a, a good supplement to the gospel according to Jesus, where if you are a uh, if you are in Christ, because of our relationship with the Lord, he has purchased us. We are like his slaves. We're owned by him. We're his property. There is, there is a relationship now where we, are, we follow his lordship, and he uh, is our benevolent master who takes care of us. We cannot just willfully walk away from that relationship, just like a slave in the Roman times couldn't willfully walk away from their, their master. Because you would get That's in trouble, right. you get hunted down, and in the same, and so there's a lot of wonderful truths about the security of the believer and the the relationship that we have with our God and His Lordship over us and our obedience to Him. All of those things that are important to the Christian life. Well, the King James saw fit, and a lot of translations do this as well, to translate "doulos" as just servant. Well. And I've been in arguments with King James only it's about this phrase, and you know they're like, well, you're now his, your servant is much more, much more of a familial relationship, and we are his friends, and slaves is so harsh, but that's not what the word means. That's and right. The King James, you know, obviously the context will determine that, but in, even in the New Testament, people understood what doulos was. And or a do boy. I mean, that was a slave. It was a person who was not just in some kind of come and go as I please relationship, like an employer or an employee or or a butler. I mean, you know, at some kind of manner over in England, you could go home and be done with his duties for the for the evening. You were there all the time, on call for the master. Everybody understood right. that. There is theological depth to that phrase. Well. Okay, because King James doesn't translate it in that fashion, and I think it loses an important little uh, truth, a little nugget yep. that could be- better be clarified. And I might be digressing it's, it's, off of all the thing here, but no, that's I think that's I think that's huge. I think that's, that is huge because uh, man, what a radical view of what it is to be, you know, a Christian. I mean, it's just, it yeah. seems to be completely different from, you know, what you hear in modern-day American evangelicalism. I, just, I think that it's just it's radically different. I love oh, it. Yeah, I think it's just exactly what the Bible says. So, preach on, brother, preach on. <laughs> and do an altar call <laughs> after this. <laughs> well, I was going to say that Git probably represents a group of, there are varying degrees of King James only. Um, there are right. some more that are more, some that are more radical than others. Uh, a lot of my acquaintances that I know who are reformed um, and have more of a Puritan mindset with what they do and they're from that heritage, they would prefer the King James because, well, it was the, uh, after the Geneva Bible was sort of, that transplanted by the King James, just because King James had the authority to make everybody read his Bible. Um, you know, when, once the Puritan Revolution started, and you had the nonconformists uh, getting their churches and coming here to the United States, well, they brought the King James Bible with them, along with the Geneva Bible as well. 
most of the people don't understand that Puritans and Christians, after the translation of the King James, still stuck with the Geneva Bible uh, for many years afterwards because, well, they didn't like King James. He was considered a, uh, well, you know, to kind of couch it in modern terms, he was sort of like the Obama of his age. You know, they didn't like his policies and kind of what he was about, and they didn't want to have anything to do with him. And in their mind, he's corrupted God's word by having this compromised Bible published. And they wanted one that was true to the Reformation, had to study notes and everything. Well, eventually the King James did uh, did replace the Geneva Bible, and uh, those uh, individuals took it and they read it. And, um, you know, now I'm kind of thinking, what was I going with this? Um, oh, I lost my train of thought here. I have kids, sorry about that, that are, I'm trying to kind of, my wife is at a doctor's appointment, and I'm like, well, honey, I've got this little interview thing. <laughs> so they're in there watching, uh, they're in there watching something on uh, Netflix, I believe. I heard a little scream, so I think the baby is up. But anyway, I'm good, I'm good. I apologize for that. I was, I, I, I got distracted, and I lost my stream of thought there. Um, You're fine. Okay. Oh, I apologize for that. Uh, anyway, anyway. Yeah, so let's, um, if you want, let's see. I know we had, uh, I'm trying to find exactly, we had somewhat of a little bit of a, a format. What, what are the primary, what would you say a few of the primary arguments that the KJV onlyists will 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 use. What are um, what what's a few of the top arguments uh, that, that they're using to say we why we should uh, not use the other Bibles? Okay, sure, sure. The um, when I wrote a series on this, I uh, uh, kind of getting myself thinking through these issues. I came up. I'm sure it's probably more, but I came up with six key ones. Um, the first one is kind of what we're talking about. There's an exclusivity argument. I'm I, 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 I kind of looking at one of my articles online here. Um, and that basically is just saying that they're going to start with the assumption that the Word of God alone equals the King James only alone. So the King James is a priori. It is a um, the Word of God. And, of course, there's going to be, um, you know, varying uh, degrees in that because some of them will obviously, they're not going to read the 1611 original because it's hard to read. Uh, They go to a certain limit, and so they'll explain, well, what you have here is, uh, you know, God was saw fit to make sure that the languages was sort of updated and, you know, but the text wasn't changed is kind of how they will argue. But they will conclude, declare that this, the King James is alone is the word of God alone. So that if you alter the King James or if you try to make a better, a, a clearer rendering of the text, well, then you're in danger of modifying the word of God. Uh, funny, though, about that point is if you're familiar with D.A. Wade, for instance, I remember on his um, – on his website, I think it was a Bible for Today catalog. They used to keep, they used to carry a little English dictionary thing uh, for, for uh, basically uh, 
explaining the hard to understand and the words that have kind of gone out of use from the 1700s and we don't use it anymore. So when you came upon unknown or to fetch a compass, or those little phrases like that are old English, well, they would have a, a modern dictionary there that would explain them, which kind of, you know, undermines that whole point there in my thinking. Um, their next deal, is, their next argument in the, my little outline was what I call the promise argument, and that is the claim that God has made clear promises, preserved his word forever, and typically when you argue with a King James only, they will say that it wasn't just the message, it just wasn't the ideas. I mean, it was the very words. And so they'll emphasize the plural at the end there and the claim that, you know, you look at uh, Psalm 12, 7, where it says, you know, thy word is, you know, pure words and I preserve them forever. Um, you know, they'll claim that that's God promising to preserve his words forever. And so there's not going to be any tampering. Well, you and I would agree that God preserves his word. I mean, we would affirm that. We just don't believe it is through one little narrow channel of Bible text that brought us to the King James. We believe that, I believe for myself, that he does it in the, the multitude of translations or, and in copies of, of manuscripts right. and so forth. And that in that, you know, he has made it, incumbent upon his people to actually engage the data, the data there, and to, um, you know, and to mine out his word. I think there was a reason why God did that. Not only did it safeguard it from being kind of gathered up by one crazy guy and destroyed, but it also kind of makes us have to work at what God is wanting us to do. I mean, if you think of an old illustration from Judges, he left a lot of the men, a lot of the Canaanites in the land so that the people would have to learn how to fight them because he wanted them to, he didn't want them to become soft. Well, I guess if you want to liken that illustration to academic wise, you know, he's made it that way so that we as Christians would engage the text, that we would want to know what he said and that we would hunt and, and uh, uncover what God said so that we can get to what he said and to believe it. I mean, that's how I take it. Um, a third argument that they use is the textual argument. And this is probably the one you and I are most familiar with, if any listeners are hearing this. Um, and that is, is that they believe that um, the, by the King James represents uh, the majority of ancient manuscript witnesses, okay? So you had when the, when the New Testament was written, um, you had the majority of these manuscripts that were uh, basically circulated around Antioch and Turkey and that area. Uh, they're called the Byzantine text, the majority text. And that God is, that's the one that God used because they're the majority, they're the ones that were in the most uh, circulation, they were used consistently uh, without any kind of interruption by God's believing people. And, um, and over the sea of time, as I often is described, these, man the other, you know, these manuscripts stayed true and people didn't change them and they were copied and used over and over again, whereas you had 
other manuscripts like around North Africa and that are connected, they always connected to the Alexandrian uh, school that's down, that was down in Alexander, Egypt before the Muslims came in there and wiped everybody out. <clears throat> they would say that those were uh, known for false teaching, but they're a minority and they kind of fell out of use and nobody used them until these you know, sinister men came around in the 1800s and found them and uncovered them and wanted to reintroduce them into the pure stream of the majority tech. That's kind of how they would catch that. Now, one point that's important about that is whenever they talk about that majority text thing, they're primarily mm-hmm. dealing with the New Testament. Okay? okay, they're not really dealing with the they're not really dealing with the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a totally different history to its textual development, and they you know, usually most King James arguments are going to center around the history of the Greek New Testament and its transmission through church history, whereas they they tend to overlook or I guess you could say soft play downplay the Old Testament because. With that, there's not as many manuscripts in the Old Testament. I mean, I think there's like 3,200 or something like that. Uh, we, there's other factors that we have to, de- to depend upon in order to find, you know, what did the Old Testament say, what was the original writers saying, and there's more history. I mean, there's, we believe Moses started writing the Bible, you know, 15, you know, 100 B.C., there's 1,500, at least 1,000 years of time, I mean, think about 1,000 years of time. I mean, that's like if he started writing in, you know, 1013 A.D., you know, it would be right now would be the time of the, of the you know, 400 years of silence during the intertestinal period. I mean, that's a long time. I mean, it's not a... That's not a uh, that's not a, a, a lot of uh, I guess you could say there's a lot there's a lot of history that's going on in there, and so, but they kept that text. That's you know they kept that preserved. God saw fit that He still preserved it. He just preserved it differently. King James only is tend to uh, they don't tend to develop the Old Testament you know understanding of textual criticism or according to their points of view in the same way they do the New Testament, I guess you could say. Um, the fourth argument that I had there is called the purity argument, and a lot of your folks would probably be familiar with this, and it's the idea that the King James, uh, as an English translation, has gone through a seven-fold purification process, you know, and so they'll liken it unto this idea of dross being burned off pure gold, that sort of thing. And so they will usually have this trail of Bibles that started really with Wycliffe's Lollard translation and then Tyndale's Bible and then Coverdale's Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, and then the King James Bible or the authorized version. And in those translations, they will claim that God was, you know, purifying the English language and making it better. Um, The problem with that is that they're, they don't really count the number of editions that kind of arose from those various Bible translations. I think the Geneva Bible has over 100 uh, different editions. 
that alter the text and change readings and everything. So that, I'm thinking, well, how do you explain that in a sevenfold purification process? And they take that from Psalm uh, 12, 6, 7 about, you know, it's, it's got gold is purified seven times or something like that. My memory serves. Um, it just, it just, when you look at the history, it just doesn't hold to that little formula of sevenfold purification. Um, two more. Um, the fifth yeah. one is the scholarship argument. And I heard this a lot when I was a King James onlyist, and that is the scholars of the King James were the greatest scholars, the greatest biblical scholars the world had ever known until that time. Uh, the way they pulled together the committees that were translated into various sections of the Bible, the most brilliant linguists and, you know, uh, uh, Reynolds, I think it was, one of the main Puritans, and Lancelot Andrews, uh, these guys that were involved in the translation committee, they knew like 40 languages, and they were just these geniuses. And so God and his providence pulled together these great men to give us this great Bible, the King James. And then the last argument I kind of I would hit on is what is called the historical argument. And that had to do with uh, how the King James Bible impacted world history. So you had the King James Bible being carried here to the United States and used by the Puritans and the Pilgrims, and it was preached from during the Great Awakening, and it was preached from uh, during all the missionary endeavors, all of those sort of things as the English, uh, British uh, Empire went around the world. Well, they took the King James Bible with them, and so its history is uh, has been this major impact in the world and around around the globe, as it were. And so, you know, because of those six arguments, you know, these King James only have to say, well, see, this is the Word of God. This is the Bible that you right. need to utilize and you need to use. And uh, you know, and, no, and then none other Bible does that. Um, of course, they don't really tell you that nowadays. The NIV is kind of the main translation. I think pretty much every people group in the world uh, utilizes. Right. Um, the King James, of course, is still up there, but um, uh, the ESV is starting to come up there. But the King James. It just doesn't have the influence. Now, maybe they would say that that has to do with the fact that, um, you know, the, the the Word of God has been watered down or whatever, and, the, and just, a, just a terrible situation Christianity has gotten into over the years. But um, you just can't face the fact that, look, people found the King James hard to read. They were wanting to find an easier read, uh, Bible to read. The NIV offers that to them. It may not be that it's the best choice of the translation. I have problems with the dynamic equivalency stuff, too, that the NIV is, you know, notorious for, as well as its recent, you know, development of trying to, you know, kind of doing the changing in the language and, you know, uh, making God kind of this, uh, I guess you could say, um, not really, you know, taking out the out the masculine nouns and that sort of thing, or you know, 
tweaking that. But the reality is, is people like that translation because they can read it. And the King James just does not have that. Uh, it's, you know, it represents a language of the English people that has since sort of fallen out of use the last couple of hundred years. I don't necessarily see that as being chalked up to postmodernism or, you know, the Enlightenment, right. you know, or anything like that. They tend to, to, to blame it on those things. It's just the way language changes. Let me ask you, Fred, do you think that there are some, um, like, English translations that are, that are better than others? Oh, yes, most definitely. Okay. There is something to say. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, I was just, just going to say go ahead. Maybe we can... Uh, just kind of give a list for for people who are wanting maybe to get a study Bible or something, and, and right, right, right. Wanting to well, the MacArthur you know. Study Bible, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, uh, the uh, yes, uh, there is some truth to the complaint that King James only will often raise about modern translations. Uh, it is true that in our modern day world, uh, publishing companies. Um, do not want to spend copyright money <laughs> to pay to get someone's copyright to use their text in their published author's works or whatever. And you have some guy who wants to put together a study Bible or something like that. I mean, it's hard to – I mean, it costs a lot of money to get the rights to use a certain text that has been translated. Um, I'm sure we could debate and argue and – talk about just the uh, or the virtue in that. I mean, I don't have a problem with the fact that the NASB is copyrighted by the Lockman Foundation. They're trying to protect their material. They don't want it to be tampered with. I mean, copyrights can be a good thing in that way. It's not going to be misused. And then you're also paying them to keep the Bible in print whenever you do that. And uh, you also would like to pay the translators who you know, spent the time away from their families and, and then the hours working together and having to travel to do it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but because of that situation, obviously publishing houses and companies are going to commission their own translation because if you do that, well, then you're not going to have to go out and pay money to buy the copyright of another book and to use it. So if you want to put together a devotional well, let's put together a translation, you know, called the message or whatever, and we'll use that, and we can use it because it's our work. And and so there's some truth to that. Uh, so right. you have translations popping up everywhere. Um, but a really good rule of thumb is that you want a, a translation. I would research, you know, the background to the translation you want. If this is somebody who's really seriously wanting to get into some good Bible study and have a reliable translation, well, do a little history of, hey, where did this translation come from? Who was the key people behind it? Uh, what was the purpose? What were they wanting to do? And, you know, was there a committee? Uh, a good thing about committees is a group of guys, you know, they're going to check each other's work and they are going to consider 
you know, the way something is read and they're going to exchange their work and they're going to be able to correct any problems that may not be clear as opposed to, you know, maybe one or two people doing a translation uh, that would easily, like, well, I translated the Hebrew, let's get this thing in print and out the door. Um, and so you have a group of men who know what they're doing um, and who are solid and committed to the Word of God. And if you know that, I think you're going to have a good translation. Around where I am from, here at Grace Church, uh, and in college, or in, uh, in the college and in seminary, the popular translations are going to be, uh, of course, the King James, and of course the New King James, which is sort of a modern version of the King James, uh, though King James only has hated because they claim that it's been corrupted, of course. Um, and the New American Standard Bible, which I think has been has gone through an edition uh, that is, uh, I think, in 1995 or this last major, or maybe it was 2005. Um, it's it recently got an update. Uh, and the ESV, and that's, those are probably the key translations that most people utilize. Uh, all of those translations, I believe, are good, and they are mm-hmm. going to be reliable. They're going to uh, direct you back to what the text is saying. I mean, obviously, they read a little bit differently in places. Uh, my kids are at an age now where they can kind of follow along in their little New King James or whatever, and I might be reading from the ESV, and they're going, well, oh, that doesn't say the same thing. I'm like, well, you have to explain that. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, you, most people – go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, you're fine. I was just going to say take, take uh, two minutes and, and wrap us up. Uh, and wrap up? Um, yeah, we've sure, got, we sure, got about sure. uh, three or four minutes left. I'm going to tell you take two minutes, and, and, and if you have any loose thread you want to tie together – um, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and, and do that. Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, my um, my just my hope is that the folks that are uh, listening to this, I mean, I've, I haven't really even scratched the surface of a lot of the various things that are a problem with King James onlyism. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's probably lots of people that will hear this later and it's like, well, he didn't touch this and he didn't talk about this, and he didn't do this thing. Are you there? Oh, no. Yes, uh-huh. Oh, okay, okay. I touched my phone here, and I thought I turned you off. Oh. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, um, I am here. I think, okay. Uh, I just hope that people will understand, look, your, your, your Bible has not been corrupted by heretics. God is a faithful God. He has given us his revelation. He has seen fit that it is going to be preserved for us. Uh, he did not do it through one narrow little group of manuscripts like I believe that the King James only us believes. I think that he has done so through a plethora of manuscripts that have been spread out over the world. Uh, North Africa was, I mean, sure, there were heretical people floating around in the ancient uh, church, but God had faithful men who were there defending the doctrines of the faith they were identifying those people. The Bibles that have come down to us that have been faithfully uh, translated and preserved and given to us are, are reliable. It gives us what God wants us to know. And we can take and be confident 
that uh, even if the manuscripts come from Alexandria, Egypt, and even if they come from, you know, wherever they're in the ancient world, when we utilize them, our goal is that we want to um, look at them, consider them, and know that, uh, you know, this is what God has said, and render a faithful translation of that for the people to know and to believe. Uh, right. The King James, yeah, the King James onlyists were clear in their letter to the uh, readers in the, in the opening preface of their um, of their translation when it was first published that they were hoping that their you know Bible would get translated again. They desired right. for it to be in the hands of the people, and if you keep it fixed in one little translation that is now 400 years old in this old ancient language that a lot of people are not familiar with, it's just, you're going to lose God's word. People are not going to be able to, you know, love it and honor it because they can't understand it. That right. basically undoes what the translators of the 1611 wanted us to do with their work. All right. Well, Mr. Butler, appreciate you being on the show and uh, Is sharing an your hour over- and a half. Man, a lot. That's like I know. It's already been an hour and a half. My gosh, I know. You were, you were emailing me, telling me, "Oh man, you know, we've got an hour and a half to fill." Oh (laughs) man, what am I going to do? What am I going to talk about? (laughs) We'll probably do another another show on it. I definitely want to have you back uh, in the future. I mean, if if you're if you want to, anyway, would love to have you come back. Maybe we can do some stuff on creation, evolution, and some other. Other issues. I know we we share a lot of the same passions and, and interests. And yeah, uh, man, right. it's been great having you on the show. And podcast is up uh, as soon as the show ends. And uh, appreciate you coming on. All right. I'll hope to talk to you soon. You will. You will. I'll be getting in contact with you soon. All right. Bye bye. Uh, all right, thanks. And uh, next week, folks, remember Rob Bowman is going to be here with the Doctrine of the Trinity. Invite you to have your uh, friends who maybe are Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Muslims who have questions about the Doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, invite them on and uh, to come listen and feel free to call in and have their objections. So until next week, see you then. God bless. Where are the witnesses? Where are the spurs? Preach the word. Preach the word. It must not be forgotten that religious controversy is inevitable where living faith and definite truth dwells side by side with error and evil. And preachers may remember that controversial preaching is full of power and full of interest. This is to say that the Reformers did not maintain the status quo in the church. When they expounded the Scriptures, they rocked the boat. They created waves. And the safest way to have a nice little ministry is just preach certain portions of the Bible and overlook other portions. 
But if you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and your commitment is to preach through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, and not neglect any doctrine that is set forth in the text, rest assured, controversy will result. Every true revival is born in controversy and leads to more controversy. That has been true, he said, ever since our Lord said that He did not come to bring peace upon the earth, but a sword. I would remind us all that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and the preaching of the Reformation that brought down the strongholds of the day was the preaching of the Word of God and it was controversial preaching. If you come back to the Bible and a resurgence in inerrancy, it will always lead to a resurgence of Reformed theology. Because Reformed theology is nothing more, nothing less than the sum and the substance of the pure teaching of the Word of God. If one desires not to have a controversial ministry, then don't preach the Bible. But if you do preach the Bible, you will preach the doctrines of grace. God will use it to the bestowing of blessing upon His church and upon His people, and it sets in right motion everything that is right in the church. The doctrines of grace purify our worship. It purifies our fellowship. It purifies our own spiritual lives. It sets in motion our ministries. It purifies our evangelism. It inflames our missions. This was part of the epicenter of the shock of the Reformation that was unleashed upon Europe and sent its earthquake effects across the Atlantic to reverberate here in the colonies of America. This is the preaching of the Reformation. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.